LITC podcast. It's a special, special podcast. We're with, I don't even know what to call you. You've got so many different names, but we'll stick with Gilbert, Maxi Sobo, the infamous. All right, we're here in Cameroon, um, Diwala to be precise. That's the quarter that we're in. It's, oh, mate, to say the least, I can hear. There's a lot, I think there's a wedding going on downstairs, so there's a big ceremony going downstairs, so you might hear it um, throughout the podcast, but apologies for that. But um, the way we like to start with our podcast is by looking at a piece of art. And I think this is very befitting, but yeah, so this is the artwork that we've got. And um, just literally, we like to ask whoever we're interviewing, what do you think about it? Actually, it's uh, an apt description of the neighborhood in which we are in. Um, you see a couple of longboats. If you look out on the window, you see a couple of those outside. Um, it's just a reflection of um, people that live by the water. You have the old saying, you live by, by the land, by the fruits of the land. Um, these folks live by the fruits of the water. So they go fishing. Uh, most of the sand that comes out of the building around the area is from there, but this describes, you know, the old culture. Yeah? Yeah. Okay, and in terms of when you look at this picture, what feelings come to mind, like emotions, feelings? Sour home. Sour home. It's our home. Sour is literally describes the region in which we are in. Okay. You know, and I was born in this region, so... Yeah? Yeah. So feelings of home. Feelings of home. Okay, nice. All right, cool. So without further ado, this is about you, and we want to know about. We start to go back from the beginning, so we want to know about how you grew up, family life, siblings, where you grew up, and basically the point of you getting to where you are now. Right. So yeah, take it away. Um, I was born in this town. Yeah, and this town, Douala. Douala. It's hot, it's hot, it's hot. There's a lot of traffic, there's a lot of traffic going on around there. Just in case you haven't been to Douala, Cameroon, it's busy. It's the economic capital of Cameroon. What? Because the two, the two most important things in the African culture is um, sharing a meal and uh, what you believe in. You know, um, that's, those, those, that's where you, you actually get your, your morality from. You know, um, the closer your family is, the easier it is for you to pick up from what your parents, how your parents grew up, your parents' parents, your uncles, your aunties, and stuff like that. You know, table is where you share your day to day experiences. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, your papa always gets asked, you know, hey, what happened to you? You know, that cut in your hand. It wasn't there in the morning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Cut in your hand. Yeah. Um, Where's that t shirt from? I haven't taken that from you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did I take my nose? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, Sharing a meal and most probably sharing two meals a day, you know, lunch and dinner. Um, not breakfast, no. Breakfast, not breakfast, because in the morning, you, 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 everybody's trying to get out of the house. You yeah. know? And when we grew up, you know, school started about 7 a.m. in the morning, so that's, you know, people getting ready to get in the shower, you know, three, four kids, everybody's trying to get out. Now, when I was growing up, um, my parents still sent to work for the government. Um, these are the two two shift thing going on, you know, like you know, they work from seven thirty to about twelve thirty, come home for lunch, okay. then go back at say three o'clock yeah. or four o'clock, then come back home at six o'clock. You know, which made it quite impressive. So every lunch hour we went to school, English speaking, we went to school seven o'clock, by one o'clock we were back home. So we actually were always home. 
from my channel. Okay, you know what what what, what the government used to call about then siesta hour. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, when the sun the sun's really hot up, so didn't want nobody going to school at that point in time or anybody being at work, you know. Um so they come back home, we have lunch together, they go back to work, they'll be back at again before seven for dinner. Mm-hmm. Okay, so, well, so it was it was a close knit family, you yeah. know. Um Okay. And what was it like schooling? What was it like? I wanna give me a picture or paint a picture for people that don't know the world, don't know what it's like to go to school here, have a perception possibly of what they may deem Africa to be like. Give paint a picture of what it was like for you. Um going to school back then and your your teachers were entrusted. You know, teachers and parents spoke. Mm. I can't tell you how your relationship. Yes, they had a relationship. I can't tell you how many times my, my teacher woke me, man. Yeah. Seriously, put a beat into me. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, normally kid then? No, 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 it's maybe not for, for not doing my assignments correctly or stuff like that. And then when I come back home, you know, he, you know, come to the house and tell my parents, maybe I'm not doing so well in school when I should be doing so well in school. And I get a beating again at home, man. Yeah. <laughs> so what was that? Because like, this, is, this is a really good point. Because obviously our viewers are generally from the UK and whatnot, and that system, well, it's not in the UK anymore. It used to be once upon a time. What do you think about that? Like kids being beaten by teachers or disciplined, as it were. Um, without without pushing it too far, I, I, I believe education begins at home. You know, parents have a greater part of educating the children. Mm. You know, the teacher only comes in to further the education that the parents have given to their children at home. Back when I was growing up, you know, I don't think I ever had a teacher that I would say, I would pinpoint and say, this man or woman, you know, beat me so bad that he left a, a scar in my memory. I don't have that type of, you know. So I come from that old school. Yeah. I come from that old school where parents and teacher work hand in hand, yeah. you know, and the parent can tell the child, listen, you can go as far as this, but don't cross this line. Yeah. And the teacher will respect that. Okay. You know, because you know, the teachers' children were my friends and they used to come to our houses and play. So, you know, you don't expect you don't expect your 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 your, your friends dad to be putting it too hard and you know, he lived at your parents. Mm-hmm. You come tell your parents that mm-hmm. yeah, 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 like that. Yeah. So what was it like? Was it a lot of fun growing up in oh, the was fun. It was yeah. fun. So it was fun. It was yeah. fun. Give me give me an example of something. I don't know what would be fun. I know it's hard because you're thinking about when you were a kid. Yeah. Um, I just want people to really understand the, the climate. Me, me personally, personal experience, um, I only got into sports when I when I got into like secondary school and high school. So a lot of times, you know, growing up in primary school, I used to spend a lot of time reading. Mm-hmm. When my friends would, would be playing soccer games and stuff like that, I'm reading books, man. You know, I'm reading uh, 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 Tom Sawyer's, you know, Tale of Two Cities, you know, stuff like that. Because my mom, my mom imprinted on us the importance of reading. You know, my mom used to say, um, an educated person, you can you cannot compare with somebody that's gone to school. And somebody that's gone to school cannot compare with somebody that has traveled. And if you haven't traveled, the next best thing to do is to travel in books. See the war from people's eyes that have traveled, you know, 
And so I used to get into ice cream and books. Okay. And what would you say? That's nice because it leads me into my next question. What would you say your three or two favorite books are? The Bible. Okay, so the Bible. Yes. Yeah. You know, um, so it wasn't just about God or the religious part of it. It was just reading mm-hmm. and seeing what other cultures were like. Mm-hmm. You know, reading from a historic point of view, reading from a story point of view. Because as a kid growing up, there is no way you can understand the theological side of the Bible. Especially if you're given the kid's Bible to read. You're given it to, to, to familiarize yourself with, with stories, you know, and get some morality into you. But, you know, why you shouldn't steal, why you shouldn't do, you know, things that you shouldn't do, you know, most of that. So. Okay. All right, cool. Um, do you have any favorite quotes? My people die for lack of knowledge. My people die from lack of knowledge. Who's that quote from? That's from the book of uh, Hosea, I believe. It's in that. Yeah. Yeah. And. Joshua. Joshua. So expand on that a little bit. Expand on that. Why that means that so much to you? Um, Because you can't talk about something if you don't know about it. Mm -hmm. So basically, it deals with ignorance. Do you think a lot of people do that? Yes. I think a lot of people. I think a lot of people. Especially into this world. Even yeah. though we have the yeah. internet, we have Google, and we have all this accessible information within our reach, which is the very which is yeah. you know when I went when, yeah. which is a, which is a very good thing. But people still chose to be ignorant. You know, um, coming from the society in which you come from, you know, you have racism. Why? Why would someone decide to be racist towards you when tomorrow they could be in the hospital sick and it could be your kidney that saves them and they won't even know? Mm-hmm. You know, we 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 um we act terribly, terribly towards other human beings, and for fear of the things we don't know. Mm-hmm. So knowledge is power, and if you don't have knowledge, yes, who well, has knowledge will rule over you. Yeah, and I think a lot of times in this day and age, and I can definitely say for myself and. Some of my peers, I might hear something from that. They say Demas. Yeah. And Demas is telling me about, I don't know, an ancient society. And it sounds really good to me. I'm like, oh, Demas is quite knowledgeable. And in the next minute, I'm having a conversation with Alfie and I'm saying what Demas told me, but I'm talking like it's a fact. Yeah. Without actually going to do the research, verify that that is correct. That is correct. So now I'm using that and it gets passed on. And I feel that happens a lot in this day and age. Do you know what I mean? So yes, I continue. So going through school, secondary school. What, what did you want to be like when you were growing up? What was it? What was the dream? Ah, what was my dream? Playing with airplanes, wanted to become a pilot. Uh, playing with race cars, wanted to become a, a, a Formula One driver, a race car driver. Um, having a godfather, having a, a, a master, well, medical surgeon for a godfather, um, going around the hospitals and think maybe one day I'll, I'll become a doctor. Going to the seminary and thinking I wanted to become a priest. Whatever you was involved in, you wanted to be. Whatever I was involved in, I wanted to be. My parents, um, especially my mom, my mom used to say, don't limit your sphere. You can be wherever you chose to be. You know, uh, God has blessed you. As long as you enjoy what you are doing, mm-hmm. you know, you should be happy in it. 
Okay, so ambitions to be a pilot, to be a priest and whatnot. So where does this lead you? So what you were at high school, what are the dreams? After the uh, GC ordinary levels, I went back to high school, high school section of the centre. Um, and I had a little fallout with the, uh, with the principal, or the rector, as you call him, of Blessed Memory. Um, he suggested I do some certain subjects, which I didn't ask. Mm. So, yeah. He wanted me to do history, economics, and French. I wanted to do biology, chemistry, and mathematics. So we had a. And he was 15. And was you allowed to make that decision at that age? Did your parents allow you to just say, okay, would you say he was quite a hard headed young man? or No. no. Most, most kids at that age make that decision. Okay. Either, you, either through a school counselor or by the subjects you yeah. passed, you, you, you were successful in uh, ordinary levels. Okay, yeah. okay. So you decided that you didn't want to be, you weren't going to become a priest anymore, so... So I moved on to um, high school, moved from Boyer, because I went to secondary school in Boyer, I moved from Boyer, I went to Bermuda for high school, um, two years there. So, okay, because uh, obviously I've been here, so I've learned a little bit of the history. You said you moved from Boyer. Is that the... Because there's different sides of Cameroon, right? Is that the, the, the British side, as it were? Yes, that is okay. actually. So, Douala is part of the French speaking zone of Cameroon. Yeah. So, when I, I was born here, went to primary school here. After that, I went to boarding school in Boya, which yeah. is part of the uh, one of two Anglophone zones. Okay. So, Southwest, where's the Southwest? Yes. be the capital of British Cameroon. Okay. Okay. So, I went to school over there for secondary school. Then for high school, I moved now over to the other English-speaking zone, which is the Northwest. Yeah. And like, for people that don't really know, what what is that, this whole French side, British side, and apparently, well, not apparently, there's conflict going on right now because of this, right? Yes, there is. There is because... Um, <sighs> we're, both, we're both on that British... One side of Cameroon, almost after after the First World War, mm-hmm. they were given a trace to the British to first German colony. So they were originally under on the German, German, under Germany, on a Germany. And then Germany lost the First World War. So it was their territory divided up. It was divided up. It was given, you know, under Britain, Britain and France. Um, so the British side took one side, and the French, French side, side took another side. Another side. Okay. Yeah. In 1961, they did a federation thing. Wasn't even a, a possibility of Cameroon was going to um, possibly go, the British side was possibly going to go under Nigeria because they called us Nigeria. Yes. yes. Yeah. In, like I said, when, when, the Brits, when the Brits were going to leave, they did not give the English side the option of independence. Oh. It was either join Nigeria or join French Cameroon. So we decided to join, probably since 1961, we decided to join French Cameroon as a federation. Mm-hmm. Um, but sometime, maybe 10 years or 12 years after that, um, we got assimilated. Mm-hmm. So if you look at the original constitution of Cameroon, it's still a two-state federation. So we've been living as an assimilated people. Does it seem like Yes, it does. It mm-hmm. does. Now, for people like, for people like me, you know, um, fluent in French, grew up in the Francophone zone, you know, and having the type of name I have, it's easier to, to, to just mingle 
between the folds. I should also tell you something. I, I don't, which is not, which I'm not proud of this. Okay? I don't speak any of the native languages in Cameroon. And that was done by design by my parents. That's really strange, not strange. The reason I say that is to say this. I remember me and um, Demas were out the other day and we were just having some food. Yeah. And I looked and I saw these two gentlemen who were speaking French. And I, I literally said to Demas, this is crazy. Like, in terms of colonialism, just the fact that you've got these two African men just speaking French. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And I was just like, how does this work? Like, in terms of it, this happens in England, right? It's in England. Like, I'm African descent and whatnot. I speak, I speak English. But to actually see it in Cameroon, where you know it's because they've been under a rule and they're just happy speaking French. I was just like, yeah. I don't know, it just done something to me that just made me feel, and especially obviously I've been up and down, I've been seeing how it is. Yeah. But it just done something to me that just made me feel a certain type of way. But yeah. That's just me going somewhere else with this. Well, yeah. You know, I, I think my parents' idea, and, you know, I don't hold it against them. Mm-hmm. I don't hold it against them, but I, I wish that at some point they would have let us, you know, kind of like either pick up on either my father's side of town or my mother's town. But it was to avoid, it was to avoid the ability to be pinpointed as a francophone or an anglophone. Mm-hmm. Which means if I ever had to walk into an office and look for a job, if I was fluent in the whole land in both English and French, nobody could actually tell, could actually tell if I was from English speaking Cameroon, if I was from French speaking Cameroon. Makes sense, okay. Because when, when you speak, yes, when you speak, what you tend to find when you speak um, the tribal language, when you speak tribal, when you're tribal tongue. Like for example, if you have um, Indian friends in uh, Indian from the Indian background, if they speak, um, which what 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 would this is a prominent um, um, Indian language, Punjabi, Punjabi, yeah. you tend to find that that mixes in with the English they use, okay, yeah, yeah. and you can easily identify them as being of that. Even just from hearing it, you can say, okay, no, this person is from Indian descent. So my parents were trying to avoid that with us, to be able to, you know, people be able to mark and say, this person is from and this person I don't know the reason behind that, but I know that was... And would you say, for people that don't know, that the conflict is quite rough that's going on between the, the different sides? It is. It is, it is, it is, it is, it is. Um, because you explain a little bit about what the at work, because I think we touched on it about what the conflict is and what's happening right now. It, 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 to, to be honest with you, my belief, my belief, because I, I, didn't, I wasn't here when the conflict started, my belief is that Anglophones have just got tired of being so marginalized. So the British side of being tired? Yeah, that being marginalized by the French side because we have a whole, the, the English side of Cameroon has a whole different way of doing things. Completely different. We like law, we like order, we like cleanliness. Yeah. You understand? And but when you when you come to the French speaking side, there's none of that man. Yeah. Well not to the, well, I'm sure there is, but not to the 
There is none of that. Okay, cool. There is none. There is none. From the little child on the street that talks to you. The thing is, they've been expanding over the years their power into the English speaking song. And I think where it all got set off was the fact that they started expecting, they were now bringing judges, magistrates into English speaking courtrooms that knew nothing about the common law because we use the common law over on that side. They use, uh, what do they call them on this side? They use, uh, we use common law, they use civil law. So they were now bringing magistrates. How can you bring a magistrate that's, that knows nothing about common law to come arbitrate people that are on that common law? And he's using yeah. civil law. Yeah. You know, civil law principles, it doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Yeah. And we're bringing French-speaking uh, 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 teachers to come teach in English-speaking schools. Teachers that have never been trained, have never been trained in the English way of life. So it made no sense. Mm. It made no sense. And I'll give you an example. The governor of Bamenda is neither from the southwest or the northwest. Okay. So how do you get in touch with that culture? How do, yes, how do, how do you how how do you do that? How do you rule people without knowing their culture, without knowing where they're coming from? But then from what you're saying, well I understand what you're saying, but to give our supposed to be some idea, it's really escalated though, right? In terms of like, yes. even when we was here, there was I'm, I'm sure there was an incident where a little girl, a little girl got shot. Yeah, by 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 a gendarme officer. Um, can't tell you what happened. Yeah, of course. We're going to that part. That was that was. How do you how do you shoot into a car with kids inside? She, the little girl was killed, right? Yeah, she died. On the spot. So there's a lot of conflict going on at the moment. There is. There is. So in terms of you growing up and whatnot and your dreams and aspirations, being what educated on the French side and going back to the English side, tell me a little bit more about your journey and where it led you to in terms of how you progressed on. Um, after I left high school, I went to England. Yeah? Yeah. I went to England. <laughs> You know, wasn't Southampton. Um, so you went to, so you finished your schooling. Finished school, yeah. South Coast Uni in England. Yeah. Went to Southampton Institute. Um, what was you studying? Business Information Technology. Yeah, sounds about right for you. <laughs> Business Information Technology. Um, how was it? How was it like in terms of the culture coming over from Cameroon? Was that the first time you travelled outside of? Um, not not out of Cameroon. The first time I went to Europe. Okay, so how was that going to Europe? Um, cold, cold, cold. It was cold, cold. It was wet, yeah. very wet. But I was fortunate because the English weather is similar to the weather at the time in okay. Boya. Yeah, okay. And Boya, you have a constant. It's constantly gloomy. Yeah. So England is constantly gloomy. Yeah. Not very much sun. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and what was it like being away from your parents? Was it something you took in your stride, being away from your siblings? How was that? I've been in boarding school. So, yeah. So, cool. be, be, being in boarding school nine, nine months of the year, yeah. when you go away to a foreign country, you really don't feel it. And how was boarding school? Oh, man. Fantastic. 
Okay. I, know, I know different parts of the world have different images of boarding school. But over here, um, going to boarding school when I was growing up was for the affluent kids because it cost more money. Yeah. And I went to a Catholic boarding school. And not just that I went to a center. Mm-hmm. So for you, it was you being away from your, your parents was nothing new. No. So you went to the UK, you were in Southampton, you said I am um, but how was that? How was that? Like, was it a culture shock? How was that being in a new place? Uh, growing up in Dwala also helped. Growing up in Dwala also helped because coming from the new side yes. and different culture, completely different culture and all that. And then, uh, you know, most people, the culture shock gets to be with the interactions with different skin colors. Mm-hmm. So you go from all this, you know, brown skin. Now you find some of the majority of white skinned people. How was that for you? I lived in Bonaparte. We saw white people in Bonaparte. But not as much as Europe. There's no way. I've been there, like, it's not the same as Europe. Back then. Yeah. Back then. And a lot of people, a lot of people that my mom used to work with were, mm-hmm. were white. Mm-hmm. So I, I had no issues interacting with white folks. They had no problem with my accent, though. So yeah, it was, it was too, it was too, apparently it was too heavy when I got there. So did you feel that you had to code switch and that you had to simulate and change the way you speak to suit others? Um, we have no obligation to understand. It's only to make sure you can get your point across. And if getting your point across means you have to talk like them so that they can better understand what you're saying, then you do. Was that easy for you to do? That was easy for me. For what? I mean, Southampton wasn't that bad. Mm-hmm. When I made some trips to London, it was crazy. Yeah. You know, but what I found interesting was that having a conversation with people from Scotland was actually easier. Serious? Yes. I don't find that easy. You see, yeah. There you go. Yeah. For me, having a conversation with people from Scotland or some parts of Ireland was actually very easy for me mm. than sometimes actually understanding people from England themselves. Yeah. Which was which was crazy, but I, I can never I can never explain that. What I found hard in terms of communication was the fact that in Africa, in Cameroon, as you've noticed, in most black cultures, we tend to use our hands as a sign of expression mm-hmm. when we're talking. Um most white folks are not threatening, like you get into my space when you're talking to me. I found that a little bit off-putting. Yeah. Like to me, I was like, I'm just trying to express myself. Six 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 I'm, not, I'm not angry, I'm not, I'm not mad at you, I'm just trying to express myself. But you tell me, hey man, you know, stay there. This is my space, don't come, don't come too close. So I found that a little off-putting. Yeah. And what would you say is some of the biggest challenges you faced while being abroad when you was in the UK? Um, when I was in the UK, couldn't move around like some of the uh, European kids. Mm-hmm. You know? So if, if you had excursions in school, couldn't go because of visa restrictions. Um, couldn't work a certain amount of hours. If you wanted to work, you would share to a certain amount of hours to work. Um, so there's a whole lot of restrictions on international students back then. That, um, how, how was that for you? And how did that make you feel? I'd be taking the mickey. Mm-hmm. Like seriously. 
like a violation, like you're here studying, yeah. you possibly want to go on a field trip to France and whatnot, and you can't do any of those yeah. things, so you're not getting your full education here. When you say they were taking the mickey, did it make you feel, was there any resentfulness? Was there anything that made you want to take the mickey back? No. No? No. Because again, like my mother used to say, if you know somebody's like you play by your rules, or learn to play by your rules, yeah. or learn the system enough if you want to check it, yeah. play by the rules. So, yeah, so did you, did you, would you say you played by the rules when you was in the UK? Um, nah. Yeah. Nah. That's why I got deported. I got deported. Got deported? Yeah, I got deported. Um, so, okay, cool. And let's get So, <laughs> you're at uni, you're studying. Um, what did you say you were studying? BIT. Uh, okay. So, how are you getting money? How are you surviving when you're studying? Oh, yeah, so when you're studying, what are you doing like, to get money? Yes. Yes. Can I keep the feeling that one? <laughs> <laughs> Can I keep the feeling that? Um, um, some of the things I'm going to, to tell you, some of the institutions that I will tell you about will most probably negate it. Um, I had a friend in uni, a Jamaican actually, a uh, British woman, boy. and uh, that was the first time, you know, to actually thought something like this was possible. This friend of ours had a bank account at uh, Midland, okay. but for some reason, Midland I made a mistake, and there was a company that had only the same account number, but the last number changes. So I don't know whoever was inputting the account number, inputting my friend's account into it. So my friend was getting over three hundred grand a day in this account. 300,000 pounds. 300,000 pounds a day. Legitimately. Back then, the British British law used to say that whatever money hits your account is yours. As long as you didn't get it through illegal forms, whatever hits your account, if you used it, the, no legal actions could be taken against you. So he paid off his parents' houses in London. Paid for trips, had his girlfriend at uni do a dope job. They went to Ibiza, then they went to Cancun. You know? And this got me thinking. If the bank could do such a thing as a clock, could it be done? You know? So I said, I hang out a lot more with Nigerians, you know, the Arabs. Just looking at the possibility of different things. Um, went to jail a couple of times. Went to jail? Yeah. As well. Credit card fraud. As part of the learning curve, like they told me, can't keep working with people with your hands are clean. So, yeah. um, what made you decide to start doing food, basically? It wasn't what made me decide to start doing fraud. Um, I fell on a system at Barclays Bank. Okay. Back then, Barclays Bank had a system where you could use any debit card to load up a credit card. So I could take that debit card as long as I had the numbers, an expiration date and a credit code, I could load up my credit card. 
didn't have to have to have any links like they do today. Credit card and debit card have to be linked. It was after that that they started linking. You know, but by then I think through a Lloyd's bank, Lloyd's bank was been tight, man. They're already linking their stuff up. Yeah. If you are checking that, if you're if you're current account and your credit card, we're not the same person. You weren't doing any money movement, you know, um, in Lloyd's bank. But Barclays, back then for wanting to to control the majority share of the banking population, allowed some some leeways. And I also discovered that even if your credit limit was a hundred pounds, you could still overpay mm-hmm. even a hundred thousand into your credit card, and nobody will switch you. You wake up the following day, you go to the road exchange, the road exchange, show up your ID, answer the password, they give you your money. So what did you see the IDs made up? No. No, no that, that wasn't part of it. I actually got proper falls. And I explained to them yeah. what was happening. Okay. So yeah, listen, this is what is happening. This is how it's going to work out. And how did you get those people? Mates from school and stuff like that. But was it a certain type of people? And what I mean by that is were they vulnerable people? Were they people that are desperate and you could No, 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 no. Working with desperate people is never a good thing. No. No, 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 no. You do not work with desperate people. Yeah. Especially if you're getting into a into into a lot of money situation. If you work with desperate people, they are they are liable to run away your money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you work with people that understand the possible consequences of their action and are willing to take that risk mm-hmm. because they see the benefit to it. But there's also a a, 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 a possibility of total deniability. Mm-hmm. So there was always that. And most of the people I worked with got off with that whole fact of total deniability. So when it came back on them, because I know a lot of times they'll say, oh, yeah, you can do this, you can get this money, it'll be fine. But there's a time when it does come back on them, more than likely. And when it came back on them, was there any instances where, I don't know, someone you got to do it, they ended up going to prison for it, they ended up going to jail? No, they just pointed the fingers back on me. Yeah, okay. They pointed their fingers back at me. That's, that, was, that was basically the deal. If he ever comes back, you just turn around and point your finger back at me. Yeah. That's how I got to point it the first time for me. Okay. You said the first time, what, did you get to point it twice for me? No, actually. Oh, okay, okay. All right, cool. So, um, yeah, <laughs> we're going to go into that. So, what sort of figures were you making when you were doing all of this? Um, I just started. Mm. I just started. And by some fluke of nature, man, when I actually discovered that I could do on each card £10,000. I did it the first day, the second day. And I was coming back from Bournemouth on the third day, man, on a Monday night. Yeah. And I stopped at the gas station to get some phone cards. It's credit now. To be able to top up my phone to do online transaction. Back then, I was using a Virgin Mobile. Yeah. You know, had a data number, all of that, set up on the laptop. So I could sit right down and do it. Police pulled up the happy man. Yeah. Police pulled up the happy. And for the hell of me, I had a million and one names I could have given them. You know, back then, they never used to ask for IDs or anything. You had seven days to go present your paperwork at, at yeah. the police station. Yeah. For the hell of me, Charlie, I don't know. I gave them my phone. 
And what did you get nicked there? I got nicked right there and then. Yeah. That was it. Yeah. That was it. That wasn't the first time you'd been arrested though, was it the first time? No. Okay. Wow. What was that like at the time? So I'm trying to go back to this young man that's come over from Africa to study and now you're doing criminal things and the first time you're getting arrested and whatnot. What was that like? Was there a fear of, was there any fear there? What was the feelings? That's strange now. So what, did you not care about family back home? I had an education already, so really, you didn't. No. So you didn't think that, oh, well, my family going to find out about this. It's never that. You see, with me, it's never been an issue of um, of what other people would think. If you didn't help me pay for my tuition, if you weren't contributing to that, you had no assets payment. And you couldn't, not that you had no me, but you couldn't judge my actions or my intentions. Mm-hmm. I'm not proud of what I did. You know, it was almost like I'd lost my, at one point in time, I decided to take my consciousness, that, that Sindarian consciousness, and chuck it in the bin mm-hmm. and say, I don't want to do this right now. Now I just want, I just want to be back. What do you think made you like that? <sighs> do you know what? They held of me after about that for years. Mm-hmm. Can, 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 can pinpoint any exact moment in my life that that flipped me. I think it's just something that happens gradually. And what do you get from that? Apart from the monetary gain, what do you get from that? Because there must be some sort of thrill or some sort of buzz when these things are going through. What are the feelings? What are the things that are actually happening to you? What do you gain from that that makes you want to continue doing this? And I'm saying apart from the money. Just the money. Just the money. At the time, it was just the money. This just happened to be something I picked up on because of my educational background. So it's something that was out there in the open. It's something that people use every day. Mm. It's something that people did every day. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't. You didn't reinvent the wheel. I didn't reinvent the wheel. I didn't change anything. But you manipulated, right? I won't say manipulated. I would. You definitely manipulated the system. I, I won't say manipulated. I just say people. I just say I took advantage of the system. And people. People, I offered the money. So the angry, the angry government, not me. Yeah. You see, you're the one put, putting that greed in. You're dangling the carrot. You're the one that's dangling. And I've been around you enough you know, you know, you know, to know that you've got a sweet mouth. So the point I'm trying to make is <laughs> there's no way, like, no, because I think when we're having these conversations, the more open you are with it, the more I'll no. understand and other people you know, understand. You know, you know, you know. And it's quite, you know, you know, you know, you know the, honest tr- the honest truth is, the honest truth is, the joy I got from it all was, take for example, when I saw you spend money. Seeing other people, yeah, yeah. When I saw you spend the money. Yeah. What you did with the money. How crazy you went with the money. Yeah. You take a kid that was, was that is a minister, say maybe in Russia, and they have all this money they get every month, and suddenly they think they can make 10 grand a day. And it's like, let's go do it, man. And you just see how crazy they get 
and then you get a little satisfaction of seeing them get that crazy. Ah, so we got there. We got there. We got there. <laughs> so, all right, cool. So, today's episode is sponsored by 460 Nature Reserve, a brand with a purpose. If pros were fruit, 460 would be in the organic section. It's nutrition, not just food. You said that you got deported. Yeah. So you got deported at that time. You just made, what, 20 grand, and then you got deported. What was that like, coming back to the UK at that time? I mean, coming back, going back to Cameroon. What was that feeling like? What was the process of, you've been nicked, or you're in a deportation centre? Mm-hmm. What was, how long was you in a deportation centre? A couple of months. What was that like? Again, being in boarding school and all of that, I, 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 that those feelings that people get of being afraid of the unknown. Of, you know, the, the, the thing about me is if I walk in here and they say four people sitting, if I hear of one person, any fear or any uh, 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 anxiousness that I might have goes away. Mm-hmm. No, I, 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 I quite, I, it, I don't know, I don't know if it's a God-given trait or what, but I find myself being able to be comfortable in the uncomfortable, in the uncomfortable, you know, and I think that has, that has really helped me a lot, you know, over the years. What are the, because it's funny, me and Demons have spoke about this quite a few times about, we've got podcasts, we wanted to do podcasts with people that have been deported. Because in terms of also, if something happens in the UK, and you'd probably be a testament to that. Like, so people that have been in, in the UK, I've got friends that have been here from the age of five and literally have been deported under the act that they're foreign criminals. Right. Every crime they ever learned was in the UK, so yes. it doesn't even make sense. It's not like someone coming at the age of 18, coming from Nigeria, coming from wherever, whatever country it is, and they've been doing fraud or they've been doing criminal activities and then they come over to the UK and get deported for being a foreign criminal. We understand that. But a five-year-old, every crime they ever learned was in the UK. So for me, it doesn't even make sense. So it's something that we were looking at that we wanted to go into, like in terms of doing podcasts with people that have been deported from the UK. And obviously, you're one, well, you are the first. So what was that like in terms of what are the conditions in a deportation center? Is it okay? Is it not? Well, obviously, it's not okay. But what was the whole process and the conditions like? And what, how was that making you feel at the time when you was going through that? The very fact, the very fact that I could admit to myself that what I was doing was wrong, I think it's what has helped, helped ease a lot of that, which means I knew back in my head that, you know, if I admit, it's a very high possibility yeah. that I'll get to put it back to my work. Right. Now, I just so happened um, to have been put in one of the really nicer deportation centers, mm-hmm. which would be the one beside the, the Capricorn Hispanic Bowl. Back then, it was. And how long ago was this one? We are talking. 2000. Okay. So it was nice, man. So it was all right. It was nice. You know, you had, what, nice or it was okay? 
listen, when I when I say it was nice, mind you, as we talk, you won't realize yeah, it. Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. It was nice. You know, it was yeah. nice. You had your own room. You had your ensuite. You had your cable TV. You know, you had buffets three, four times a day. So while you're sitting there waiting to get shipped out, you're eating while you're playing sports. You're doing whatever you need to do. That's my definition of nice. Yeah. And- it's relative, but we're talking yes. in comparison to what we're going to talk about yeah. down the line. But let, let's no, by no means say it's nice to be in a deportation center. No, no, no. No, we're, talking, we're relative. We're talking about yes. comparison. When, yeah. I, when, I, when, I, when I say nice, okay, when I say nice, okay, um, obviously there are people that you need in deportation centers that are fighting to stay. There are people who have been ripped away from everything and anything they've ever known. Mm. You know, that, that's not nice. Mm. That's not nice. You know. Um, so when I say it was nice, it's more like, you know, I know what you mean. Yeah. yeah. Um, but going back to something you said, um, I was never a criminal before I left from here. Mm. I never stolen, actually the only thing I ever stole from my dad, which I didn't. Yeah. Sitting in the car, friend of mine going to school, right? My friend picked up, you seen the 500 coin, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. My friend picked up a 500 coin. I saw it, didn't say nothing about it. I got whooped. Yeah. I got double whooped by my dad. Just for seeing that and letting that happen and not saying anything. So, in reality, literally speaking, I've never done anything of a criminal nature. So what do you think the UK, what do you think that you've been in the UK actually made you start doing those things? Because you said you've never done anything like that in Cameroon. I think, I think that um, coming from here and you see all the nice things on TV, right? then you get to a place like the UK where all these things are accessible. Right, but you can access them because what? Because you're a foreigner. Yeah. But you paying millions of pounds in tuition fees. Yet they are telling you you can access any of these things. Mm. And you see your fellow students, fellow mates, English, not paying no tuition fees. Yet they're capable of driving all these nice cars because they are English. So you ask yourself. What's the advantage of it then? And that's why earlier when you said you felt like they were taking the Mickey. Yeah. That's why I said, did you ever take the Mickey back? You know. Because yeah, what you're saying now is that all of this things accessible, but because of who I am or where I'm from, you're limiting what I can do. So how do I balance the hearts together? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that 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 would explain why a lot of foreigners. Okay, and that is most probably the mentality of a lot of short search that maybe travel to go defraud uh, West people in Western countries and stuff like that. Would you say you're a food star? No. Would you say you've been a food star? Yeah. Would that be your title? No. No, no, no. What would be your title? If you have to define yourself in the criminal fraternity, what would be your title? If I had to define myself in the criminal fraternity, I would just say, I'm a Yeah. 
So I don't go breaking systems or recreating systems or finding back holes in systems. No. I look at how Charlie wakes up in the morning, puts on his pairs of shoes. Now, is there anything, does Charlie do anything different about that process of Charlie putting on his pair of shoes or putting on both pair of shoes? Right? Does it allow me somehow to type the two laces of Charlie's feet? Which he normally does. And benefit from that. So, okay. So you're back. You're back in Cameroon. You've been deployed. What's the plan? What's the feelings? Are you feeling at the time? Taking it in your stride? What's the plan from there? I'm taking this stride. I'm just looking. Nothing. Have you, got, have you got money at the time? No, because most of the money I had to pick up, a uh, good old friend of mine picked up, never sent me any. Yeah. So, um, the figure you went to right? See me in coming back. You know, um, as things will happen a year or so after that, I'm going to black up. So, you back. Now I'm back. Under one of your aliases. Under one of my aliases. And, um, I'm going to run with my friends. With my money here. Yeah. That's my money. You're supposed to pick up this money. You're supposed to hold for me. You know? You all stop answering my phone calls. And the minute I got into camera, I told you I was in Cameroon, you're, you're blacklisting me. So where's my money? I didn't get a few bit back. Mm-hmm. You know? Um, she gave me like 20 grand. I'm going to go like five grand. Which wasn't a lot, but it was enough to, yeah. to start up again. Um, so I was thinking like that very good part of what? 10 months? Then I left. It just, it just wasn't the same. Okay, were you still doing the same stuff? Nah, it just wasn't the same. It just wasn't the same. It just wasn't the same. Okay. It just wasn't the same. And you left and where did you go? I came back home. Yeah. Came back home. So what, what? So you've gone through the process. How long was the process for you to make your way over to America? So you've been in England for ten months. Is that it's not the same anymore? Come back yeah. to Cameroon. Decided like you know what? I'm gonna go to America. Gone through that process. How long did that take? Well, I stayed in Cameroon for a while. I stayed in Cameroon for a while. How long was a while? Four months, five months. Okay. But when I decided that I wanted to move, it most probably took me a month. Okay. The whole process took me about a month. And what was so you went to America, right? Yeah. And what part? I said, in Seattle. And what was that like? <sighs> New. Mm. New. New. Very different to the UK. Very, very different to the UK. Very different to the UK. People are different. They talk different. They eat differently. Um, feel at home over there? No. No, no, no. That is that is that is one thing I have to say. Um, I don't think America will let me make black. So, would you say you felt more at home in the UK? I miss the UK even after today. Yeah, I do. I don't miss America. No, I don't. And I spend more time in America than I in the UK. Okay. Made more money in America than I did in the UK. But I don't miss, I don't, I do not miss America. Mm. I don't. 
So go on, tell, tell me about when you was in America. So you made your way to America, you're in Seattle. What are you doing? How are you surviving? Uh, I regulated my status maybe a year from when I got it. I got it in 2003. By 2004, I regulated my status. Uh, opened up a couple of companies. How do you just open up a couple of companies? Okay, I see. What do you need quite a bit of money to do that? Or? No, you can register a company, yes. Oh, so you registered a couple of companies? A couple of companies. Yeah. Um, for the purpose of? For business. What, business or fraud? No, business. Okay, business, business, business. Fraud, fraud came down the road, my brother. Okay. Fraud came down the road. Fraud, fraud was never in the initial plans. Fraud okay. came down the road. Um, Legitimate business. For a long time, I was, I was known as a Roseman of Seattle. Yeah. Yeah, if you if you're a roseman or Seattle. Yeah, what was that doing what? Selling roses. Yeah. Selling roses in nightclubs, man. I was making quite a bit of money doing yeah. that. Yeah. yeah. What made you just it was just a hustle? I I I I, I met this um funny enough, I met this um um black American. I don't call him African Americans, I don't. Mm-hmm. Um, I met this black American and um and he asked me, he said he was trying to check my wife. I went to go throw the trash, right? And he saw at, 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 at the trash at, at the bean place and he tried to chat her off. And she's like, Mommy! <laughs> so that's how we got introduced. So one day he says to me, Come here to your wife. Is she in America? No, no, she's coming. But was you met her in America? No, we, we, we left. Oh, so you both went together? Yeah, okay, together. cool. Um, so um, he said to me, He said, You know, come help me at a club. There's this Mexican club. And, I'm bouncing it. I said, bouncing, it's a bouncer. He asked me to come help him. So I went up there. And then this Asian lady walks in, like this little Chinese lady walks in with a rose bucket, man. And he's like, can you help her out so that, take her around so that people don't steal her roses? She had about 20 roses in the bucket. So I said, Liza, how much for one? She said, $5. I took that bucket. And within 10 minutes, I have all those roses sold. I made 100 bucks yeah. in less than 10 minutes. That my friend, I said, when we go back home tomorrow, you take me to where they sell roses. I said, that's how I got into it. Yeah. That's how I got into it. And how much were you making good money from that? Yeah. Um, working from 10 to 2, 10 to 3, I could easily pocket on average $300 a mm-hmm. night. Nice. some money. That's the some money. Yeah, so you're doing that? I'm doing that. Um, decided to do a, a master's degree. Um, since I haven't been to school, the fact that I was a business owner allowed them to, to take me in into the master's degree program. Um, after that, um, I'm going to drop again. I back. It was hard. That's all my troubles there. Around all this money, yeah, good. <laughs> made, you, made you feel like I need some of this. It made me feel like, yeah, I needed some of this. Um, so you know, you start finding ways in which now you're on the inside, right? So you start finding ways in which you can get rid of some of this money. And um, but then I realized that you easily get caught. See, don't blow the Americans money up. They protect their money more than anything. Mm. Alright? So, it became a whole thing of uh, 
doing insurance scams, insurance fraud, you know? Yeah. So you went from bank fraud to doing insurance fraud. So even though I got cash with bank fraud in America, and how long was you doing this for? From 2006, most probably from 2009. Yeah, so about three years. And what were you? What sort of figures were you making? Single deal for only about ninety grand. And how often would you be doing these sort of deals? The whole point wasn't the small deals. That wasn't the whole point. The whole point was trying to build up to something bigger. So everything that was being done was being reinvested into paying taxes, you know, showing up, showing that the business was growing and doing exactly what we said it was doing. You know. So that at the end of the day, you know, if you do present your tax your tax documents to, to a loan officer, you'll be able to get a big pay, you know. So you're saying if I pay tax for two hundred thousand, uh, let's say you have three hundred thousand pounds, that would clearly show that I'm earning over a million pounds. No. If you pay taxes, if you pay that obviously you pay tax on net income, right? After mm-hmm. all you have to yeah. So if you pay taxes, yeah, if you pay taxes for say two hundred, three, four hundred thousand pounds, it will show you making that over a cross is over a million pounds. Mm-hmm. So if you do it over a period of three years, who's gonna question you? If they want to audit you, the tax office has the proper records. It has all the money you've paid, right? Even if you sit in your home, even if you have, if you, even if you have home, it's your office. Even if you have a home office. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I think it was Al Capone that said this. Pay the taxman, and you can have everything you want to have. Because yeah. he did get done by the taxman, didn't he? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Always give the taxman his share. Like I said earlier, there's a wedding ceremony going on downstairs. I think that was a stunt. <laughs> That's what I said. But yeah, so, all right, cool. So you're saying that you're doing this, you're doing it for about three years. So you, on average, how much would you say you was making a week with this sort of thing? On average, I could most probably say we're pulling in about 100, 150 grand a week. Yeah. And what are you doing at the time? That's a lot of money. So what are you doing with this money? Still in the fast life? No, not really. There was that whole impression of living the fast life. You know, you go into certain circles, you know. But to be honest with you, I've never been the I've never been the dude that I can give you a good part, I can show you that easy to get bored. So what uh, where did your money go? Reinvesting in. Mm-hmm. Reinvesting in, like I said, paying the tax man. Mm. So you said they caught up with you? Yeah. yeah. They caught up with me. Um, I was actually vacationing in Cancun at the time. Um, so now you get to understand my whole idea of or my whole reason for saying the detention center, immigration detention center um, in England. Yeah, Mexico. Was, yeah. Because when you, comp- when you compare that to a jail in Mexico, right? Yeah. Mm. It's no joke. Okay? 
Mm-hmm. It's no joke. You know, I saw people get killed as so, so they caught up with you. So did you have any inclination that they were onto you at the time or not at all? Yes. Because I did, before I went to Mexico, I had a visit from the Feds. And I did tell them I was going to Mexico vacation mm-hmm. because I'd already planned the vacation. So I told them I was going to Mexico. And they said they gave me an they gave me a they gave me an okay. But then when you do read the newspaper clipping, it's like I ran to Mexico knowing that they were after me. But no. Um, so, you, so you've been arrested by the feds, and the feds are very different from the this state police. Like, I got arrested by Interpol. Interpol. Yes. Oh, um, okay, so you've been arrested by Interpol, and they put you in the Me- Mexican prison. Yeah. And how long was you in there for? I was there from September 2009 to April 2010. Yeah. Yeah. That's how long it took for the extradition process to go back to the state. And like you said, so when you're in there, so is it like nothing else you've seen? Because I've, I've seen some stuff on TV about Mexican prisons and they look yeah. like, well, they look awful to be honest. Oh, they're awful. Yeah. They're awful, but they're also very good. Good for what? Depending on which one you happen to find yourself. Yeah. I happen to be at uh, Reposolo Veronese North. Okay. Northern prison, Mexico City, or by the hills. Right. Um, Sanitation-wise, sucks. But as far as uh, movement, being able to carry on doing business, you know, you could. I met a few people in prison that make more money while working in prison than they would ever do while they're on the streets. They prefer being in prison because they could work and support their family than being on the street. Well, because they what they might be in danger being on the streets. No, because there was no work on the streets. Yeah. But in prison they found work. Yeah. And most people what would you say, what was the typical time like for you over there in terms of was it mainly Americans that were in the prisons over there? No, or? I was in the Mexican prison. Okay, so how did you get back? We were talking about being, we talked earlier about being comfortable in the uncomfortable. Yeah. So I was talking about language. So what was that like in terms of communication? Ah, that was most probably the most horrible thing I ever felt. That was the first time I found myself in a situation where I couldn't understand the language. And was, what about race? Did race come into it? Yeah. Really? They're actually very fond of black people. Yeah, especially Africans. Yeah, they do respect us a lot. And what makes you say that? Um, I had an encounter while on the streets of Mexico um, with uh, a couple of guys that worked for the cartels. Because I spoke English, and just coming from America, actually go pick up on the accent. The way they treated me. The hostility towards me was unspeakable. But then when I finally confronted them as to why every time I met them, they were so hostile towards my person, all they said to me was, gringo, vete to casa. Gringo, go back home. I said, I said, well, hold on. Gringo, I'm not American. Pero, usted si viene de America. Yes, I came from America, but I'm not American. Mm. I'm a Cameroonian. I'm African. And if, if, if you were standing there, you saw the light that went up in their eye. The first person they called was Roger Lila. <laughs> 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 the, yes. the second person they called was Omambe. 
Umandi played in Club America, which is one of the biggest football clubs in Mexico. Mm-hmm. And he's a Cameroonian. Kalusha Oboya, which was a very famous African player, played over there. So that just, it just went from level of hostility to level of friendship. Yeah, yeah. Like, come here, sit down. Let's, yeah. let's drink up a little bit. So it was the same thing in prison. So what was one of the worst days that you had in there? One of the worst days I had in there was, I was walking behind this, um, this gentleman. His wife had been to visit him. And I was talking with him, and he had a worker, because even in prison, other prisoners have workers that are other prisoners. Mm-hmm. He had a worker of his accompanying his wife. And we went past this guy that was on the phone, and literally this guy stopped and ogled the backside now. The woman back said, not knowing that the husband was behind him. I've never seen somebody being beaten. Senseless. He got beaten with a phone. Mm-hmm. Like smashed up in the head, bro. He died from head and mm-hmm. It's a difference of being shunned, like you see in American prisons. And watch somebody get beaten on the head. Something that simple. And you as a person, an individual, like you said, coming from Cameroon, you've never done any crime up until when you went to the UK, witnessing these things and seeing these things. How did it actually make you feel? Obviously, it's survival of the fittest, but what does that do to you as an individual? You want to leave. I don't mean like get up and leave because you cannot do that to the process over there. Your survival instincts become even more. As in, if I have to survive this place, I have to be- learn the best way to do it, not to be in that position. So, when, uh, it's that survival instinct. You said you was in there for what, 10 months? From September to April. Okay, September to April. About seven months. So about seven months. And then you said they're extraditing you to America. At this time, are you speaking with your, your lawyers and they telling you, well, look, this is what you might be, once you're extradited, this is what you're going to be looking at. Well, not have you, you know, lied. Mm-hmm. Generally, the way the extradition process works is um, you get, it's almost like you go through the same judicial process in the country in which you cover it. So I take for example, if say you have Charlie and you get picked up mm-hmm. in Cameroon for a crime that was committed in England, they have to judge by Cameroonian standards. Is that crime a crime in Cameroon? And would it, you know, entice more than a year in prison? Would you get more than a year in prison if you were sentenced in Cameroon? If the answer is yes, you will go back to the US or to England, sorry. If the answer is no, Cameroon will set you free. Now, you cannot, once you're extradited back to the UK, the UK can no longer bring any more charges against you. And the only charge that you have to face in the UK once you go back is the one for which you were found extraditable in the first place. 
So in reality, I was found extractable on one count. When I went back, I got charged with all seven counts. Mm-hmm. Now, you remember my, my whole statement about my people that for lack of knowledge? Yeah, of course. So it keeps on coming back. There you go. Yeah. It keeps on coming back. If you don't know, somebody's going to screw you or the system's going to beat you up. And what were you looking at? Uh, each kind of bank fraud is equivalent about 30 years. So you can set. And what did you end up? What did you end up getting? I ended up doing about ten, or ten years, ten years. Ten years in prison. Yeah. How the hell, man? What was that like? What? I don't even know. What's What's the Mexican prison? I was saying. If I if listen, this is what this is where this is where a lot of people will think I'm crazy. The facility in Mexico in which I was in, right? I could have drawn up my process. I might my lawyer at the time that I could have drawn up my process because um, each day I did in the Mexican facility was counted against any time that could have been given to me in the US. Mm-hmm. I had more freedom in the Mexican prison. There's no freedom in the American prison. It's all money. You locked that, you locked down for 24 hours. Especially now, now they've created a whole system where foreigners, non, non-US citizens go to a whole different prison and US citizens go to a whole different prison. US citizens and um, foreign nationals don't mix anymore in American prison. Even in the federal system, they don't mix. So 10 years. So, man, I can't even think about that. Did you ever spend any time in the hole, anything like that? Oh, yeah, I spent a lot of time in the hole. What was that for? How comes? Obviously, you have to be doing some... Something to be like you have to be charged, right? To be put in the hole. No, you don't. You don't, you don't have to be charged to be put in a hole. If the, if, if 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 the, if the prison facility, if the surgeon or the captain determines at some point in time that you are a disturbance to the facility in which you think he'll drop you in the hole. And was you a disturbance to the facility? Yeah, I was. Why? What was happening that made you? Um, I started speaking out on. On, on, on the abuse in the system. There's a lot of abuse going on. A lot of abuse. A lot of abuse um, by, by, by prison officials. Not, not, not giving us what was due ours and not providing us some of the stuff that they said were provided, that was listed as being provided to prisoners. Again, I will say this. The fact that they separated the Americans citizens and the foreign ones and, and the foreigners into two separate prisons made it easier and has made it easier for this what you call um, um, non-governmental organizations like uh, corporations Cop of America CCA mm. right, that run um, prison systems are the highest prison owners in America to do whatever they want to do they take money from the government saying they're going to provide services which they never provide so when you start talking about that and drawing attention to that, you become a nuisance and a disturbance to their system. You want to talk about fraud? Mm. There you go. It takes one to know. It takes one to be able. It takes one. When you look at a system, if you look at a system and see the way it's organized, you know 
you can actually say that somebody is doing something that they ain't supposed to be doing, you know, and somebody's making a lot of money mm. from people suffering. You know? And so you need to, um, thinking about the prison, was it very segregated in terms of different groups, like blacks with the blacks, Muslims? Um, was it like that? Like how we see in the UK, we see a lot of I don't know, like you've got like the white racist group, like the neo-Nazis together. Was it very much like that in terms of different groups and segregation? Well, being that being that um, we are all foreigners, you know, so you had um, the biggest the biggest um, groups in prison while I was there were the Hispanics. Okay, so you had the Mexicans. And they were still up in so many groups, man. You had you had the Norteños, you had the Sorreños, Latin Kings. You had Latin Kings, which more had some Salvadorians. Mm -hmm. You had the Salvadoreños, you had MS 13s, you know, then you had the Christian group, the Christian group the biggest of them all. Among the Latinos. Mm -hmm. You know, um, then you had the Cubans. And even the Cubans were still up in the two. You had the white looking Cubans, and then you had the uh, the black looking Cubans. Uh, they had the Dominicans, um, then you had the Europeans, and then you had the Africans. Yeah. Mm -hmm. They just, uh, just leave them Africans alone yeah. because all they do is sit down, play chess, play scrabble games, talk about how much money they're going to make when they get out of here. Once this time, it's amazing, man. People go and sit and talk about, you know, all that group of people sit and talk about women, girls, and you know, doing drugs. Africans don't do that in prison. Mm -hmm. They say, and they'll tell you, hey, listen, what plans do you have for when you get out of here? And is, is that a group you were with? I'm an African. Yeah, so was you with that group? Because you seem like you're quite versatile, like you can go to different I, 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 Listen, I, I used to, I'm, I'm in prison, I used to be an educationist. You know, so I work with education, education departments. Mm -hmm. You know, um, so I, I, I used to mingle mm -hmm. with all of the groups. Because obviously my class, I used to teach all of them. So when I get out, you know, everybody is respectful of the fact that I am a teacher. I don't take a mickey and I'm always trying to help you when you want, when you actually need help. So there is that. So one thing that obviously I know, because I know you personally, one thing we didn't touch, or a thing that we haven't touched on is, did you have a child before you go into prison? Yes. 